0: okie dokie so i am recording but like you can cut it out because we have
1: no problem this is going in the bloopers
0: yeah (laughs) oh my god don't make the bloopers too long that would be terrible (laughs) Yeah. okay so um welcome to another episode of midterms in a pod everybody henry would you like to introduce yourself
1: I'm Henry. I, I took intro to psych last semester, so don't count on me.
0: <laughs> and what's your program?
1: Uh, I'm in math and finance.
0: Awesome. Um, I'm Camilla. I'm in commerce. So as you can see, we're both in the money-making program. So are we the best people for this podcast? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see.
1: No, definitely like, manipulation, psychology, psychological manipulation is very important for money-making, Camilla.
0: Facts. Okay, facts. Awesome. Yes. Let's get into it then. Um, so, we shall start with chapter 1, which is psychology. Evolution of a science.
1: Yay. <laughs> oh my god. Alright. Okay, first question. What is psychology?
0: what is psychology? So psychology is the scientific study of the mind and behavior. And the three key points to take away from that is the fact that psychology is scientific. Um, It studies the mind, which people tend to forget, and it studies behaviors. And the mind is, um, it is related to your inner private experience. It includes your perception, your thoughts, memories, feelings, how you perceive experiences and then behaviors are observable actions. So um, a behavior that Henry is showing is that he is nodding, right? Awesome.
1: Yes, okay. Also, people do you know that if you are um, with certain teachers, they will have certain terms for what happens inside the mind and what happens outside. For example, uh, my teacher, I highly recommend her, by the way, uh, Ms. Burton, um, she used the term covert and overt to refer to what's happened inside the mind and what happened outside the mind. And overt would be behaviors, everything that you can see, and covert would be everything that's hidden, like um, covert racism, for example.
0: Awesome. So for everybody who has Henry's teacher, keep that in mind. If you don't have Henry's teacher, then...
1: Don't worry about that. Yeah, don't
0: worry about that, but you also should look at your own notes because, you know, but anyways...
1: Things happen, yeah, things happen.
0: (laughs) Alright, moving on. Yes.
1: Remember Aristotle and Socrates.
0: Mm -hmm. So before psychology is psychology, it's not psychology. If we go back thousands of years to ancient Greece then we have philosophers and back then these philosophers were trying to answer a question which is are we born evil or do we become evil and so two great quote unquote great philosophers um, tried to answer this question using their own philosophical theories and the first of the two is Plato and he argued for nativism, which essentially is a philosophical view that certain kinds of knowledge are innate or inborn, so he argues that we are either born good or evil, we don't become good or evil, we are just born the way we are, and that's how it is. Um, On the other hand, we have Aristotle, another Greek philosopher who argued against Plato using the theory of the tabula rasa or also known as the blank slate and this is in line with the philosophical um, point of view of philosophical empiricism which argues that all knowledge is acquired through experience so you are not born evil or good you are born blank but through your environment and the way you grow up you become one or the other. So the argument of nativism versus philosophical empiricism could be seen as the equivalent to the nature versus nurture argument in today's society, Um, but more and more we are trying to stray away from trying to answer this question as which is correct, but more so um, we are agreeing on that they both are correct to some degree, but we're trying to find what is the balance between the two like how much, are, how much of us is affected or shaped by our environment and how much is shaped by our nature, the way we are born.
1: Excellently put. And again, for those taking Miss um, Kimberly Burton's class, just remember the term nativism and philosophical empiricism and the philosophers associated with them uh, because the philosophical debate, uh, we didn't care about that in that class
0: yeah so,
1: next topic
0: so now going away from greece we're traveling ahead in time to the 1500s 1600s and we're here in france and people are starting to ask more and more questions about the mind such as like what's the mind what's the brain how does a brain and a body connect blah 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 are Currents. None of these are theories just yet. Like the things that Henry and I mentioned just now, uh, philosophical empiricism and nativism, those are currents. We will only get to theories after clinical psychology. So... Let's meet Mr. René Degas. He's a French philosopher who argues for the idea of dualism between the mind and the body and the influence of the pineal gland. So dualism is essentially the idea that the mind and the body are not only two different things but they are made up of different substances. The mind is immaterial and the body is material. The mind is more so of a spiritual substance similar to like the idea of a soul and Descartes was trying to figure out how could two things of two different substances connect? And how do they work together if they are of different substances?
1: Yeah, makes sense. And then we come to Thomas Hobbes. So I guess I remember this, so I can talk about it now. So Thomas Hobbes basically argued against Descartes. He said like, um, so basically remember this, the, the mind, so the mind that Descartes was talking about, the mind was what the brain does. So in other words, the mind is a product of human biology itself, so it was not a separate construct or a material that made of like soul or spirit or something like that. It, it is indeed just a, in modern terms, psychological phenomenon produced by the brain.
0: Beautifully put.
1: Okay, next next topic.
0: So traveling a little bit more ahead in time, we're now in the seven hundreds to. 1800s era. And um, for the first time, we are starting to study and put emphasis on the role of the brain um, into how humans actually function. So meet Mr. Franz Joseph Gall, who argues that mental ability is related to brain size. And he is the first person to ever make a link between how your brain is and how your mental ability or how you actually function so he puts emphasis on the leveling between the brain and behaviors and we will introduce the concept of phrenology which is a now defunct theory that specified that specific mental abilities and characteristics are localized in specific regions of the brain um, and although this concept has been proven wrong
1: it was very popular at the time
0: exactly that it was very very popular at the time and essentially what gout or people who followed this concept would do is they would touch a person's head and skull and like based on the bumps or the shape of the skull they would try to like analyze a person's mental ability so that theory was actually proven false However, what was right about phrenology is that we do have dedicated parts of our brain um, for specific functions, and despite his map and analysis of the skull being completely, completely wrong, um, this idea was true, and this was sh- shown by this very next man named Paul Broca. So this man he studied um, brain damaged patients, and he was able to link um, locations in the brain to specific abilities. So, he was studying patients with left frontal lobe brain damage and one of his most famous patients was Mr. Tantan. Tan. Um, and the reason why he is named Tantan was because that...
1: You can only speak Tantan.
0: Exactly. And um, it's very interesting because this man, although he could not produce speech properly, he was able to understand speech. And this is when Broker realized that there were specific regions of the brain for specific functions. And with the specific case of Mr. Tan Tan, um, his inability to produce speech has to do with his left brain.
1: Yes. Well, for again, for Miss Burton's class, we don't need to know that. Oh, actually, I don't know if we, you guys need to know this for this semester, but last semester we did not, so I think she will not ask for it. Yeah, so be careful. Check your teachers first.
0: Mm-hmm. And so um, the left frontal lobe of your brain is known as Broca's area, and is a, it is responsible for speech production. Um, another key thing to remember, if you are not in Henry's class... Is that Wernicke's area or Wernicke's area is another area of the brain that is responsible for language comprehension. So if somebody had a damaged Wernicke's area, then they might be able to produce speech, but they won't be able to necessarily understand um, people speaking to them. So yeah, very interesting.
1: Oh, actually, for my class, um. For broadcast area and Wernicke's area, you do need to know that. Um, That's in the third chapter, if I'm not mistaken, in neuroscience or in...
0: Ah.
1: Right. So in that part, in that context, you do need to know that the Wernicke's area is in the temporal lobe on the left side and the broadcast area is in the frontal lobe on the left side. And they are responsible, again, the Wernicke's area for hearing and a bit for language production. And left frontal lobe, the broadcast areas for mainly response for language production. So that you do need to know, but history, no. That, leave, that, leave that to your history teacher.
0: Please do well on your history exams.
1: Yes, do do well on them. Oh, well, hope you
0: did well. Yeah, hopefully. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on, we're talking about structuralism now because reasons. Um, and this part of psychology really focuses on applying methods from physiology to psychology. So physiology is the study of biological processes, um, especially in the human body, and in an attempt to push this field forward, people wanted psychology to become more of a science, not just philosophical, because up till now they're just theories, nothing is occurring just yet, um, nothing was even proven, it's just guys sitting around making guesses, I suppose. And so they want to be able to study, measure, and analyze the data of psychology. So during the 1800s, there was a real evolution to the field of physiology, um, which has been a while, been around for a while now, and they had a lot of tools in them, and those tools could be used to study and measure the data very well. So we have Mr. Herman Von Helmholtz. my apologies for mispronouncing that, um, and this guy developed a method for measuring the speed of the nerve nerve impulses, which is essentially how quickly does info travel from your brain to, like, other parts of your body, for example your fingertips.
1: Or the other way around.
0: Or the other way around, that is correct. And to understand this, we need to understand the concept of a stimulus. What is a stimulus? Do you want to explain? Um,
1: it's basically um, think of it as something ticklish, but not in the good way. Or yeah, well, it can be ticklish literally, or it can like be something that hurts, or you can you can feel it. That's the most important thing. Oh, and you might you might not be able to feel it exactly, but you will be able to see it. Um, to smell it, any senses, for example, sight, smell, hearing, taste, or touch will be counted as a stimulus. Was that okay? Because I haven't studied that for a long time.
0: That was excellent. That's pretty much it. Um, yeah. And then, following that, we have the concept of reaction time. Do you want to explain this as well?
1: Uh, I don't remember, so you go ahead.
0: Okay, Um, so reaction time in coordination was what Henry just said. It's the amount of time that it takes for a person to respond to a specific stimulus. So if I punch Henry in the face, which I won't, don't worry. um, The reaction time is how long it will take him to react to my punch. Like, will he block my punch? Will he let me punch him? (laughs) Or so on. (laughs) I'm sorry, I won't My punch reac- you.
1: My reaction time is very slow, so you will probably succeed in punching <laughs> me.
0: <laughs> Henry, don't say that.
1: Um, so yeah. So guys, if you ever meet me in school, uh, I hope we do. If you punch me, I will probably get hit.
0: Oh no, don't guys, don't punch Henry, please. He's so nice. Okay, so um, back to the topic of physiology, which is quote-unquote science in the eyes of people. People were trying to use tools from physiology and apply it to psychology to really measure it. And what Mr. Wilhelm Wundt... Wilhelm what?
1: Oh, Wilhelm Wundt. Yes, Wilhelm Wundt.
0: So, Wilhelm Wundt.
1: Don't worry about the name, guys.
0: Okay, yeah, anyways. Super cool guy, he's... Um, The first to open a psychological laboratory and um, he was really applying like different concepts of the sciences to psychology and he kind of was the one to develop the first quote unquote current of psychology known as structuralism. He saw that people in chemistry were looking at different substances and breaking it down to parts, seeing seeing what it was made of. Um, And so he stole this idea, stole the idea of breaking things down into atoms, cells, I don't know, science.
1: We're not science people, so sorry about that.
0: (laughs) And then he applied this idea to, um, he applied this idea from physiology. To psychology, he was really trying to break down the mind into different parts that he could understand some of the parts individually on their own. Um, so yeah, structuralism is all about taking things apart, understanding the individual parts, to understand the brain as a whole.
1: I think that was it. Um, again, for Miss Burton's class, uh, I don't remember so I'm sorry about this. Uh, structuralism yeah, I don't. Oh, it was about breaking down to different parts that I remember. Oh yes, this is important. For for anyone taking Miss Burton's class, uh, Miss Kimberly Burton's class, not Miss Andrew Burton's class, because we have two Miss Burton, right? Wait, one's an English teacher. Yes, the others an English teacher. Anyway, for uh, Miss Kimberly Burton's class, we do need to remember the date. I She probably will not ask you this because it's open t- open book, I think. Um, but do you know that it's uh, 18, uh, 1879, yes.
0: You heard the man. And then the same man... Um, okay, so he believed that the scientific study of psychology should focus on the idea of...
1: Yes, yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah, so he was focusing on the idea of consciousness. And what is consciousness? It is essentially your subjective experience of the world. It is how you perceive the world. What's really funny about this concept is, while Henry and I may be living in the same moment, experiencing the same thing, um, we won't have the same experience necessarily because we may perceive it in different ways.
1: Uh, for Miss Kimberly's class, the concept of introspection is very important. So, she, for example, here with would... Um, flash a light and ask a person how bright it is and ask him to um, voice his uh, feelings and his uh, emotions or his thoughts so he could um, analyze or assess the person's consciousness and he would do so by testing multiple senses and uh, he would try to piece together the consciousness of the person. That's why it's called structuralism because it's like by structure.
0: And just to add on to basically that was very well put by the way um so what you should take away from this is that Von, he wanted to break down consciousness to small parts as well to understand a whole and like henry said that's the idea behind structuralism now moving on we have the functionalism approach ooh scary <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. okay um so with functionalism Um, let us introduce to you William James, who also wrote a book called The Principles of Psychology. Okay, so William James, um, he argued against what Von said, that consciousness should be broken down. Um, he didn't believe that you could break down consciousness, basically is what he's trying to argue here, and he developed different ways to study psychology instead. Um, he wasn't really interested in understanding the parts like the structuralists were, he wanted to understand the purpose. So instead of understanding what the parts or how the parts function, he wants to understand what those parts do. And so functionalism is the study of the purpose that mental processes serve in, ena- in enabling people to adapt to their environment. So. The key question here is what's the purpose of a certain behavior such as being aggressive or being competitive or having a memory? Like what does it do to serve you? Um yeah, wanna add to that?
1: Uh remember he is influenced by the natural selection of Charles Darwin. So for example, he argued that um, men get jealous over um, for example, seeing the women they, they like with another man because uh, apparently jealous men were able to better protect their mates in prehistoric time so that's the theory he, he went on, he was influenced by uh, natural ev- uh, selection and then he developed func- uh, the, um, the theory of functionalism based on that, so he says every function is served to adapt the human being to their environment and allow them to survive so every mental processes must have a function just like Camila said
0: Exactly. So yeah, like Henry said, that's natural selection. Um, It basically states that the features of an organism that helps something survive and reproduce are more likely than other features to be passed on to subsequent generations. Just to restate what Henry pretty much said. And then before we move on, just to compare structuralism and functionalism side by side, So structuralism, remember, it's really about wanting to understand the parts, whereas functionalism wants to understand the function and the purpose of why we do what we do, instead of just breaking things apart and like looking at it.
1: Yeah, so guys, you can think of it this way. So structuralism is sort of like an uh, encyclopedia where you can look at information and how they fit together. For example, in a dictionary, you might see like a picture of a screwdriver and like the specific term for each part so that would be structuralism they would break down the, the consciousness um, so to speak into different parts and then you can sort of analyze it and however functionalism would be actually taking the screwdriver and um, use it to fix something for example so it's actually the function of the object itself okay next topic
0: um so moving on we will now talk about clinical psychology. So while structuralists and functionalists are doing what they're doing, looking at how, how and why people behave or think the way they do, um, we have another group of people known as the clinical psychologists. And at this point, um, they're really focusing on studying mental disorders through observations. And they use observation as a technique, basically. There are different currents of clinical psychology that emerged during this period, so keep that in mind, we will go through it. Um, but the most important person to come out of this is Sigmund Freud. And okay, we all know who he is at this point. Um, hate him or love him, here's what he does. He's one of the most influential clinical psychologists then. Um, his mentor was... Jean-Martin Charcot, who used different techniques to study his patients with hysteria. Um, which hysteria... Actually, Henry, do you want to explain what hysteria is?
1: I think hysteria was just a term used there for people losing mental abilities. Well, temporarily, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Pretty much it. So like a temporary loss of cognitive or motor functions. Um, so one of the techniques that... Um, Mr. Shako used to treat patients with hysteria is hypnosis, which will go on to be used by fruit. And hypnosis is basically putting people under another state of consciousness. And using hypnosis, pe- they were trying to understand why they were having these hysteric moments. Um, because, like, one way to think about it is when you're in this state, you might not want to admit a lot of things or you're not aware of why you're doing certain things, but then when you're being hypnotized um, under that different state of consciousness, you might be able to explain and recognize a lot more of like the subconscious side of you. So that was something that they used back then to address hysteria or to deal with hysteria. And um, yeah, following this... Okay, okay. So Freud, he really believed that hysteria originated from painful unconscious experiences. And he strongly believed that there was a part of the mind that operated outside of awareness or outside of consciousness, and it is known as the unconscious.
1: Very creative term in there, Freud.
0: <laughs> so the unconscious, can you guess what it is? Hmm. It is basically things that you're not even aware of. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And um, he believes it really affects your like um feelings, emotions, actions, all that good stuff. And so he developed the psychoanal psychoanalytic theory. And uh, this. My friend, it's the first theory of psychology. Yes, it is no longer a current. Oh my god. Theory. So yeah, one way to remember this is that um, theories in psychology start to emerge right after fruit. So he he really marks the beginning of theories. Um, so if you're ever stuck on like being able to tell the difference between which are currents and which are theories, just think of fruit as like that dividing line.
1: And for Ms. Kimberly Burton's class, we didn't talk about serial current, we just didn't even differentiate them. So um, Freud for us was just a, uh, now it's not a very popular thinker anymore. Uh, He argued the idea of the unconscious, basically saying that the conscious mind will repress certain um, uncomfortable memory or desires or emotion into another part of the mind to try to repress it. And uh, is it... Here he talks about like uh, how problems came about due to this act of repression, or I think that was in a later chapter. Yeah, that's in a later chapter, so don't worry about that for the midterm.
0: So remember what Henry just said, because even if you're not in Miss Burton's class, chances are you might have learned that. I think I did for sure. But on the topic of psychoanalytic theory, um, so from the same guy as Henry was saying, basically this technique was really all about trying to bring what was unconscious to the conscious mind. So again, a lot of what Henry just said, there were many techniques under this one technique. There was dream analysis, um, hypnosis, as we mentioned, was one that he used, and it was all just to touch on that unconscious side of um, the human mind. So Fruits' theory, um, was one to really really shape psychology but as Henry said, it's not one that's very commonly or widely used now today um, also because there were a lot of very controversial and really not good things that that guy based his theory on um, things that we now know better not to believe or listen to, you know okay, um, on the topic of fruit, we now have the psychosexual development theory okay so um psychosexual development so basically Fruit strongly strongly pushed for the idea that our personality was shaped by three distinct parts um the id the ego and the superego and the one thing to take away from this really is that the id and the superego are always always in constant conflict the id is your unconscious biological demands and instant gratification that you you just sort of want. So examples of that is like, oh, I want a new phone, period. Um, my teacher compared it to like a two year old that just want things. It doesn't really think about the consequences that follows that, it just simply wants things. And then you have your super ego. Um, so if we were to think about this in the sense that there's a a devil an angel and just a person in between then the super ego would definitely be your quote-unquote angel and it monitors the intents of your behaviors so it help it holds your um behaviors to a degree of morality so basically you're gonna be like oh i really want a new phone but then it's gonna ask you is that right like do you actually need it and make you really question everything about your life and feel bad about it (laughs) um yes yes. yeah exactly and that's why the super ego and the id are always in like constant conflict and right in the middle you have the ego and the ego its job is really to please both sides of the problem so it has to make a choice to act in a way that i suppose it could satisfy the id but also not violate the morality or the moral code set out by the superego. So, okay, maybe um I don't need a phone just yet, but I will get one in a year or something like that, or maybe I don't need a phone, but I'll go get a phone case because that seems reasonable. Maybe. I don't know, man. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. And that's basically it for the cycle sexual development. Oh, also um this guy he talks about a lot of sexual stuff don't ask me why i have no clue but um something he stated was that each child faced a conflict related to a particular erogenous zone and um if at every stage of life, if that zone of your body is not well gratified or satisfied, then you're going to be stuck on it. And it's going to affect your adult life in one way or another.
1: Well, for Miss kimberly cloud, we don't need to know any of that. Not the, not the super ego, nor the ego. <laughs> so... We just need to um, just need to know Freud and his psychoanalytic theory. That's the main thing you need to know from the textbook, and yeah, don't worry about the id or the superego. Just know that uh, when you feel the the urge to like binge watch Netflix theory uh, series and um, like your princess, no, yeah, that's sort of it.
0: That's really good um, <laughs> analysis of not analysis. What's a word? analogy (laughs) analogy yeah that's pretty much it yeah okay then moving on um
1: humanism right i think
0: yeah we can move on to that i think so humanism is also another um theory that belongs under clinical psychology but they're really, really nice. Fruit was kind of aggressive. Like, he was really mm, sad. Like, his theories were really, really Ooh, sad.
1: Camilla, wait. Maybe we should move humanism a bit later because that came up sort of as a response to another psychological movement.
0: Oh, behaviorism, right?
1: Exactly. So, we should talk about behaviorism first.
0: Got you, got you. Okay. Um, now we're going to talk about the theory of behavioralism.
1: Do you want to... Oh, well, um, like, um, behaviorism I think, was basically based on the idea that... So there was this first guy uh, in Russia. He was studying... Uh, so his name was Pavlov. He was studying salvation in dogs in regard to food. And um, eventually he found, found out uh, that... Uh, even the, when there was no food, just at the presence of the feeders or, for example, the sound of the key turning, the dogs would start to produce saliva. And that's how he first discovered, um, what's it called, uh, reflex, yeah, I think it was reflex. And uh, from that, James Watson developed this theory of behaviorism, which is that um, behaviors are sort of conditioned by certain stimulus, and then they just happen on its own. For example, um, think of, mm, I don't know, why do you study hard? Maybe like when you were a child, your, chi- uh, your parents bought you a toy every time you got like a, a, um, a, a perfect score or something. That's why you study hard. So his arguments basically, uh, people are reinforced to do certain behaviors and punished. So they avoid doing certain behaviors even when they're not punished when they do it. I think that was it. Or I wasn't mixing it up with Skinner.
0: Well Skinner is also under... Risk. Yeah
1: he's the new behaviorism which will come back later.
0: Yeah so pretty much like what Henry said, um, that was really well said so good job man. Um, another Yay. figure that depending on your class you may or may not want to know is associated with this um, theory. I mean you should know But whether it's on your test or not, that I can't guarantee. But her name is Margaret Washburn. And she's the first woman to receive a PhD in psychology. Woohoo! And she argued that non-human animals have conscious mental experiences too. So she was an important um, figure. And she is also associated with this theory of psychology. So keep that in mind. And the other fellow that is associated with... um, Behaviorism and, like Henry said, he is sort of like a later figure of behaviorism is Skinner. Um, this guy, he, d- he developed the conditioning chamber, which the world kind of calls the Skinner box. But um, yes. Do you want to explain this or?
1: Well, I don't quite remember Skinner, even though we learned like a lot about him. So he basically. He argued for uh, uh for reinforcement and punishment, um, and so uh, every so like a, an organism would behave a certain way because it was reinforced to do so. For example, a rat would like uh, touch a but- button because he was given food after he t- touched the button. So he is more likely to touch it again because he is reinforced to touch the button. So he will keep on touching the button because he will get more food, and he will probably continue to touch the button uh, until he's full.
0: Yeah, very well said, as always. So that whole rat-in-a-box touching button experience, that very popular um, experiment happens in a box as we all know it tends to do, Um, and that box is what we call the conditioning chamber. And as Henry said, there's this concept of reinforcement, which is you're more likely to do something more or less based on the consequences of...
1: Yeah, that's yeah, that's the key of behaviorism. Yeah, I actually forgot that. Thank you for bringing that up, Camila, because the idea behind behaviorism is uh, a behavior is more or less likely to reproduce based on the consequence of what happened after the behavior.
0: Exactly. And the key word here to take away is likely because humans as you may know um even if something is so bad for you like the experience is not nice but you feel like doing it you might still do it so likely but never 100 percent. you can't guarantee but just based on like past um patterns we could sort of make those assumptions okay um now do we want to dive oh, back
1: i just into... want to make a little parenthesis for for those in Miss Kimberly Burton's class, I think you do need to know uh, James Watson, and uh, he first really defined uh, behaviorism, and yeah, he was the he was very interested in studying babies and uh, the development, childhood development. So he was the one who did the little experiment on little Albert, and uh, yeah, so just re- remember to study James Watson and uh, his experiment, with little Albert, how. He has conditioned a child to learn fear. And for those in social sciences, especially in commerce and math and finance, um, he later went into advertising. And he was very successful because he was a psychologist. So if you want to make money or go into advertising, you can read more about him.
0: Therefore, you should not, you know, you should pay attention in this class if you want to make money.
1: Exactly. The whole point of psychology.
0: Yes. Mm, okay. Um alright. So you Henry, you mentioned that humanism is actually a response to behavioralism. Do you wanna tell us how so?
1: Because humanists regards I think human as a whole. They don't want they think that um are too uh, reducing of human beings by reducing reducing them to their individual parts. So they argue that humans really need to be considered as a whole and not just Wait, I think I'm mixing it up because that's pretty um Yeah, I think I'm mixing it up with uh, another another theory.
0: So the humanist theory? Don't worry, don't worry. I you stated a lot of like key points from it though. So even if you were combining them, don't worry too much cuz like a lot of the key points were spe- or peeking through um, so the humanist theory, it's as Henry said, this one was a response to the um, behavioralism theory because this one holds humans to very high regards. It's all about like being nice to your friends is what you should take away from it. Call their patients. Patients, it's the client and the... Oh the, um, well,
1: yes, that's important.
0: Mm-hmm, like the client and the therapist instead of like the patient and the psychologist um so yeah it's really about that this movement was during the 19
1: 19- the 60s
0: mm-hmm. which is i don't know oh
1: civil civil rights movement
0: was it i don't remember <laughs> i think so actually like i think so there was also like an anti-war movement going on
1: oh vietnam
0: yeah 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 right
1: Oh, well, again, for Kimberly Burton's class, don't, know, don't need to know about that. Do you need to know that they changed the terminology from patient to client. And also, uh, they focused on self-development, right? Their theory was about um, every human has the potential to make the most of themselves, to develop their full potential. That's the idea behind humanism. And uh, the two most famous uh, humanistic, I guess, Humanism psychologist was Maslow, so you can think of his pyramid, and uh, Carl Rogers.
0: And even if you're not in Miss Burton's class, you should know that too, because that pretty much covers it. Also, like, does people know the pyramid if they're not in commerce? Like, if they haven't taken business yet? I
1: think it's pretty famous in, like, popular culture, right?
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Like, I took the business class, I was like... Oh, really? Yeah, first time seeing it.
1: Oh, okay. Well... Uh, the pyramids basically um, like there's one need you need to fulfill first and then you can move on to the next for example you need to fill your belly before you can start um, thinking about moral questions so um, I think Steven Pinker put this really nice in his book it's like I forgot how he put it it's like oh grub first ethic later or something yeah so that's basically the pyramid but don't need to know that. It's just a fun fact.
0: <laughs> Okie okay, dokie. Okay. So, moving on, um, we now have the Cognitivists, hmm, very interesting. We have the Cognitivists, and this is the emerge of what is known as cognitive psychology. It's another theory in psychology, and um, the textbook definition of that is, it is the scientific study of mental processes. Including perception, thought, memory, and reasoning, and it really focuses. Uh, it really focuses on the inner experience. So never mind your outward behavior. It looks at what is going on inside of your beautiful head. Um, so yeah, and they really, really made a strong link between cognitive psychology to computer p- processing systems.
1: Oh, there's uh, one more thing you need to keep in mind. So, cognitive neuroscience. So, remember the term neuroscience and cognitive? Cognitive is like the function of your mind, and neuroscience is which part of your mind performs that function. So, remember, cognitive neuroscience has elements of biology in it, and you might get this if you have a multiple choice.
0: Nice. That, yeah.
1: And I hope I'm like giving out the right information, and please don't blame me if you get the wrong questions.
0: Yeah, we get it wrong. Like
1: Yeah, we get it wrong, so do sure to study on your own. Don't just rely on this podcast.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so under the section of um, cognitive psychology, we have this subgenre of perception, and um, it refers to your five senses and how you really absorb information through your five senses so see hear, taste, smell and touch or feel like basically just that. And then under this whole shebang, we have Max oythemer and um, he is one of the first to research <laughs> research to research vision what's very interesting is that he focuses on the study of illusions. And illusions are essentially um, errors of perception, memory, or judgment. And yeah, like we know what illusions are. But um, what's interesting about his study is he wants to understand the rule because if you know what the rule is, you could actually understand what breaks it. So that's what he was really trying to focus on. Um, Something that was shown in my class, which is kind of interesting, is like she showed this picture of triangles. That are not really touching with circles and stuff, and she sort of asked us like, how many triangles or circles were there? I'm not, I don't really remember the example.
1: I think it's in the textbook.
0: Probably do read your textbook.
1: Yeah, do read your textbook. They tested on like, especially Miss uh, Miss Kimberly Burton. She she like asked things from the textbook, so do read everything.
0: You heard a man. But um, a takeaway from this is that our brain likes to complete shapes so when we see shapes that sort of look like what we know, we sort of try to like just like complete it. Which is really interesting. Um, and that's the rule to perception is the fact that our brain loves to fill in blanks. And this um, relates to what is known as gestalt psychology. Um, Gestalt, he's a perception psychologist, and he really pushed further this understanding of illusions. And he established rules on, like, how we tend to see things, um, or why we see them in, like, one way or another. For example, we all know that, like, if objects are farther, they're usually smaller, you know? Unless you're, like, Picasso and you like to, like, make abstract art, but... Aside from that, yeah, so gestalt psychology is essentially um, a, psycholog- a psychological approach that emphasizes how we often perceive the whole rather than the sum of the parts, which is very interesting. Um, moving on, we're going to talk a bit more about cognitive psychology.
1: Be- before that... Um, I do remember Gestalt psychologist as being another response of behaviorism because uh, yeah it was the Gestalt psychologist who said that behaviorism was too reducing of human beings and they they really need to consider um, not just the, the the sum of the behavior because the, the like the, the the sum is greater than the parts so that's how they thought and yeah that's it and do um, one more thing. That definition was from the textbook, so please don't copy copyright strike us.
0: Yeah, like, um, Professor Andrew's professor textbook, like, please don't copyright us. Like, we're yeah. sorry.
1: Harvard, please don't copyright like, student podcasts.
0: <laughs> we don't even. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, anyways, thanks for bringing that up, by the way, Henry. Um, so on the note of Cognitive psychology. We're gonna now draw a link to technology with it, and um, so aside from perception, another subgenre of cogn cognitive psychology is language, and this is studied by a lot of people for a long time. But one of the most notable figure is Noam Chomsky, and he's a linguist who argued that language relies on mental rules, Um, and this is interesting because it's very similar to how computer programs operate, they also rely on a set of rules, and this all took place during the World War II era if I understood it correctly. And during this era, people started to understand that our mind is really limited in many ways. Um, There are things that we cannot do as humans. However, Um, They also notice the importance of technology, um, how it can help us really overcome this. So what I really like to think of when I think of this whole topic is think calculators. Like they make us do mental math, but like calculators, guys. Like I don't need to calculate that equation, there's a calculator. So yeah, like our mind is limited in that sense. It takes so much effort to solve a single equation, whereas in a calculator, two seconds, bang, it's all done.
1: Well, there's this still hu- the human problem, like of misinputting numbers in the calculator. I'm sure, like every math person, like who's listening to this, um, yeah, we feel you. And ah, for Miss Kimberly Burton's class, do not need to know Chomsky, Tr- um, even though yes, he's a very interesting, um thinker and still alive and doing well and a lot of books
0: awesome very awesome um so now we will talk about the rise of cognitive neuroscience so neuroscience it's kind of like an umbrella term if you will um and neuroscience is all that has to do with the brain But then you have subgenres such as cognitive neuroscience and behavioral neuroscience. So what do those mean? With cognitive neuroscience remember cognitive is all about mental processes so it's really about understanding like what parts of the brain activate which mental processes And the same could be said for behavioral neuroscience, like which parts of the brain is responsible for a certain set of behaviors. And you could mix and match these in many ways. So in case you're confused on that, because I definitely was, that's pretty much that. Um, Do you want to explain neuroscience? Because I feel like you know a lot about this.
1: neuroscience is just like, I don't know, it's just biology with psychology, honestly. That's basically it, so... Guys, just remember if, like, a question that asks for some, like, how does, like, some parts of the brain, like, biological parts, meets, like, the psychological function, that's probably neuroscience.
0: That's a very good way to put it, yeah. Um... And then...
1: The evolutionary psychology. So, I can sum this up in one sentence. So think uh, like uh, so. Remember the behaviorists; they argue that um, an organism's behavior is based on uh, the consequences of its actions. Um, however, evolutionary psychology basically argues that it's not only based on the consequences of the organism's action; it's also based on the consequences of the organism's anse- ancestors' actions. Um, so, for example, a very disgusting example, but will help you remember, it's um, a rat uh, uh, learned to associate li- uh, vomit quicker with uh, with food, quicker than to associate lightning with food. Because apparently, I think, maybe its ancestor ate vomit and survived somehow. So, that will help you remember, but yeah, I hope you are not listening to this while eating supper or something.
0: As you heard, Henry... Um, it has to do with like the um, adaptation of organisms over time. And if you remember this actually has to do with natural selection. Do we remember what natural selection is? Well, if you go back a little bit, it has to do with none other than Mr. Darwin. So in a way, you could argue that um, this section that this theory of psychology was influenced by Charles Darwin. Um, he's not directly responsible for it, but um, there was influences from him. And this theory was also derived from functionalism in that sense, because functionalism um, is centered on the theory of natural selection. I hope that wasn't too confusing, but um, I think especially if you're in Professor Andrew's class, um, she kind of emphasized this, so yeah.
1: And for Miss Kimberly Burton's class, just remember that Evolutionary psychology as well as clinical, uh, sorry not clinical, um, Functionism are both influenced by Charles Darwin. And natural selection, remember natural selection. Yeah, and social and cultural psychology, I guess. Social psychology developed after World War II to um, study how people could be behave to commit things such as the Holocaust. That's all I remember
0: okay so social psychology i'll add a bit onto that
1: yeah definitely please
0: do (laughs) thank you for the history lesson (laughs) um so so, social psychology is the the study of the causes and consequences of interpersonal behavior so it actually has to do with a lot with the example that henry mentioned just now like why people do it and it has to do with looking into self-esteem and prejudice against aggression or um, how one individual sort of like deals with another and how individuals are influenced by people around them or are not around them so it's sort of one way you could think of this to summarize it up is the consequences the causes and the consequences of being social
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So think about like how you act when you're with your friends and how you act alone.
0: Pretty much, yeah. And I really hate this because I don't like to be social.
1: <laughs> we are introverts here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: so cultural psychology, I think was the study of uh, which cultural, ph- which phenomena, human phenomena are culture specific and which are culture wide.
0: Yes, So they, like Henry said, um, they tend to compare and contrast different cultures to one another to see like um, what's something that's constant throughout different cultures uh, versus something that is unique to a single culture. Okay, so this is sort of unique to Professor Andrew's class, but I'm gonna mention it anyways to help you guys out. It's called the biopsychosocial model, that was a mouthful. Um, It's not in a textbook, but the idea behind it is that it's really about combining all the theories together to um, address issues of our patients. So sometimes it's not enough to just understand a patient or a problem from a single point of view. Like maybe I could use... Um, social psychology to like better understand their behavior Um, that's a consequence of their family members perhaps but I would also like to know like what culture are they from their past so that has to do with um, psychoanalytic I believe and then um, what they aspire to be so that's um,
1: humanism
0: Mm Mm-hmm exactly so things like that so the biopsychosocial model the one thing to take away about that is really just combining all the theories we just learned or maybe combining some of the theories we just learned and using that to um, better understand patients or whatever psychological problems you're trying to solve yeah so just some institutions behind the world of psychology um, one of them is the APA, the American Psycholo- the American Psychologician Association, Ooh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. the history behind this is, remember that guy, William James? Um, he and six other men, they sort of started this whole thing in 1892, and um, a uh, sort of like sister branch of them in Canada is the Canadian Psychological Association um, and these guys, they're pretty much responsible for like making sure that all texts are up to date um, on like psychological practices, especially in clinical psychology, um, how to diagnose patients and they're responsible for like the big book on mental disorders. Um, which is known as the DSM, apparently. They make guidelines for the world of psychology. Um, Yeah. And another association that they sort of work with is the Association for Psychological Science. Um, They were formerly known as the American Psychological Society. And because um, the former that we talked about, they sort of stray away from the world of research, they developed this one specifically to focus on research. So yeah, academic research to be specific. And um, that's pretty much it. There's a few figures, but we have, for example, Mary Kulkins. Um, So she was the first female president of the APA in 1905, and her argument was that the self could not be broken down into parts. Okay, and then we have Kenneth Clark. Um, He was the first African-American president of the APA in the 1970s, and he studied the self-image in African-American children, and he um, had some influence on segregation laws. And then Francis Sunner, who was the first African-American who obtained a PhD in psychology, in the 1920, which is actually the, um, the um, mentor of the first African-American president of the APA, um, so this man, Sunner, he studied education in African-American youth, so all very impressive figures, all right, so k- chapter two, yeah,
1: Yay, we're at chapter two, we're finally at chapter two, this is the fun part.
0: Yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, methods in psychology. Um, for Professor Andrew's class specifically, um, she mentioned something that was not in a textbook, and they are the four goals of psychology. Um, it is basically like what you try to answer or understand by doing research in psychology. Um, and they are description. So um, really giving a definition. And then after that, the second goal that follows would be explanation. So basically to explain what has happened based on the description. Um, and then after that is prediction. So based on your explanation and your description of the event that has happened, what do you predict will most likely happen in the future, um, basically. And then lastly is change. So basically, um, after the first three goals how do we change an undesired behavior so basically um let's say someone's just someone just has a horrible sleeping schedule so um
1: like most students
0: like most students exactly so the description is they don't sleep enough the explanation is because they are a student. No, obviously not. But and then the prediction would be they will most likely. It's the
1: midterms, guys. It's not the students.
0: <laughs> the prediction is that they will most likely go to sleep late again. And then number four change would be how do we change this behavior? How do we make sure that this poor student does not keep on going to bed so late? And yeah. Um, all right. Now we can talk about empiricism. Woohoo.
1: Yeah, empiricism. Remember Aristotle? So yeah, Uh, empiricism again from the textbook, the belief that accurate knowledge can be acquired through observation.
0: That's pretty much it. That's as textbook definition as you could possibly get.
1: (laughs) And again, Harvard, please don't sue us. Oh my
0: god, (laughs) I would hope not. Yeah. And then this leads to what is known as the empirical method, also known as the scientific method. Yes,
1: that's why we say psychology is a science, because we use the scientific method.
0: Yes, very interesting. So Mm -hmm. um, the scientific method, or the empirical method, is a set of rules and techniques for observation um, so that we could arrive at an unbiased conclusion. I have doubts on that, but okay. Um, Also, there's this concept of dogmatism, which is people, nobody likes to be wrong. So if you already, like, if you were taught something or if you have, like, a certain assumption for whatever reason, you tend to cling on to it. So, yeah, like, you really try to make sure you're right. You don't like to be um, proven wrong. That's basically it.
1: Yeah, just think of, like, most politicians today.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the scientific method. There's six steps to it. Um, do you want me to go through it?
1: Yeah, but this is important, guys, because in midterms, highly probable, you'll get like an application problem on the different, like developing a theory, testing hypothesis, or use each such and such method to conduct a pseudo-research. So this is very important, guys. Do Do listen.
0: Okay, so the six steps of the scientific method number one um would be the literature review so before you even begin researching you have to um do like a topic research you have to look at like what is available data like what do we already know about um this topic that i'm going to research on and then step two would be to um define a hypothesis one that is operationally um, defined, so that means it has to be testable. It can't just be, um, can you give an example of one that isn't testable?
1: Hypothesis, um, one isn't testable, Uh, God doesn't exist or God God does exist, that would be a hypo- well, not a hypothesis, but a statement that would be untestable, and not a hypothesis.
0: So none of that sort of thing for this criteria. And then step three would be to choose a research design. And the research design really um, depends on your goal, basically. So if your goal is to describe something, then you choose um, the descriptive research method. If your goal is to predict, then you do correlation research. Um, If your goal is to explain that you do experimental research and we will touch on each of the um, Each of the research method in just a tad bit, but that's what you need to know for now Step four would be to make a statistical analysis So, um, if you've taken QM, this is where you could apply some of that um, knowledge to like relate to the problem here Um, so basically you perform Appropriate math using appropriate formula to like see if your data um Like makes sense (laughs) and based on that you could accept or reject your initial hypothesis And then you write a paper because of course it's a research (laughs) Number five would be to have that research um, peer review. So let's say I am the researcher so I will send my paper to Henry who is my editor And or other people in my field basically um, Because they will be able to help me criticize my paper or point out things I missed Maybe like I made a mistake somewhere um, and things like that And then if the paper is accepted um, then After a really long while to be honest, it could be published Um, If it's rejected, it doesn't mean that your paper is bad necessarily but That just means it's rejected. So step six is to create a theory um, based on the accumulation of data that you have. So like create a model or find a way to interpret your under... or to understand your findings or interpret it. So you combine like your own findings with those of others in the past and build a theory or a model based on this.
1: Wow, sucks to be that researcher. And for... Miss Burton's class, we don't need to know any of this, but we do need to know what is a theory, a hypothesis, and the different methods to verify a theory and a hypothesis. So, remember, a theory is, again, from the textbook, a hypothetical explanation of a natural phenomena, and uh, so, basically, we have an idea, and then, um, it's not we fit the evidence to match the idea, it's uh, rather we have an idea, and then we gather evidence from empiricism or otherwise, and then we use those evidence to reshape our idea. That's sort of like a theory. And from a theory, we got, get a hypothesis, or um, our conjecture of the natural phenomenon, which again, as Camila said, has to be testifiable. That's very important. So it's a um, from the from textbook again, uh, a, a falsifiable prediction made by a theory, so think of it as um, a hypothesis that Newton made was the apple will fall from the tree. Oh, well, I don't think he actually made that hypothesis, because that's just a, a story we came up with, but let's say hypothesis that you can test, and might be falsifiable depending on which planet you're on. I don't think that, 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 that's falsifiable. I mean, we're not science people, so please don't, like. So do you need to know the, the, the problems we encounter uh, during observational research, which is complexity, variability, and the reactivity. Uh, complexity, basically every, every human being is different. So okay. there's a lot of um, so for example how one person might behave or think or feeling a situation might be different from another person's feeling thoughts emotions etc. And the variability. Um, let me check because oh sorry what I talk about was variability not complexity. Um, complexity is no so complexity is just like basically the statement that humans are complex. That's basically complexity. And variability was what I first talked about. And reactivity is, um, one person they are observed, they behave very differently from when they are not observed. So, for example, um, so, um, if any of you are like, like, uh, a, a, like a, a guy super or a girl, doesn't matter, like, super into Japanese anime or manga, but like, you don't, don't want you don't want your friends or family to know it that's sort of like reactivity okay so again people behave differently when they are observed and when they are not
0: any okay okay yeah so thank you Henry for all that and then um in order to observe or measure a property um there are a few steps to do so so Measurement requires that you define the property to be measured and you find a way to to detect it So you can't just be like I'm a measure that like if I'm going to measure The number of birds that flew by my house using a roller mm, Not a good idea Um, (laughs) So we have to make an operational definition and if you remember we brought up the term operational earlier so what it means here is to define the property in measurable terms. So basically, if I'm going to measure birds that fly by my house, maybe I should count them, you know, maybe using like a clicker counter, like, um, and I'm going to measure them in terms of one bird, two birds, three birds. I'm not going to measure them in centimeters because that's really dumb, Camilla. <laughs> um, so again, to reiterate the processes, first you have to define the property that you're going to measure, and then you have to find a way to detect the property. And this will lead to the designing of an instrument or a measuring tool that has reliability and power. Um, oh, and when you define a property, um, your operational definition has to have validity. So, okay, that's a lot of vocabulary. What does this all mean? Um, let's start with the validity. The <laughs> validity so validity is the fact that your measuring tool needs to measure what it claims it is measuring okay so if i'm gonna measure centimeters my roller can't be in inches that's the most basic example just think of it that way or if the weight the, the scale it's gonna measure kilograms it can't be measuring my height because that's just not it you know
1: or for psychology you cannot uh, measure um i don't know so the text will give the example of measuring happiness but i guess you can see also use sadness as an example for example you cannot measure a person's sadness based on how much they watch K drama.
0: oh my god Oh my god, but can you, though? Can you?
1: Wait, unless, I don't know our K-drama, I, I I have never watched one, so I don't know. I'm just giving an example. Or think about, um, you cannot measure a person's sadness based on how much they eat.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because they mean different things to different people in that case. And then now we have reliability. Um, so reliability is that you're tool, your measuring tool, it has to be consistent. It has to measure, like it has to give the same answer every time if the object being measured is the same one. So if I measure um, um, let's say how...
1: Okay. Um, so a psychological example would be for example um, you're measuring a person's sadness using how much they cry. So for example a reliable instrument would be if the person cried uh i don't know like uh, like 50 millimeters of tears and then the next time and then so your instrument give you a measurement based on that how the sad that person is and the next time the person still cries 15 millimeters of tears however this time your instrument does not give you the same measurement then your instrument is not reliable and the next feature is power so the power is basically the capability of your instrument so think of like uh Uh, a a computer from 10 years ago and a computer today. So a powerful instrument, again, back to tears and sadness, if a person is sad and he cries 15 millimeters of tears one time, the instrument will give you one measurement. However, if the person next time he cries 49 millimeters, even just one a bit less, so a very powerful instrument will be able to detect that change and then give you another measurement.
0: Um, a word just to add to what Henry said because that was an excellent explanation. A word I like to associate with power is sensitivity. So, is it sensitive enough to detect that minor change? Um. Now we have observer bias. I love this part, man. Do you want to explain it?
1: Uh. So it's basically like, um, for example, if the, re- uh, the the researcher is racist, okay. And then he's going to research how many times black people seem to be behaving unacceptably in public. Then his uh, racist views will let them to uh, interpret non- just normal behaviors into racist behaviors or like um, offensible behaviors on the part of the... Yeah, that's basically an extreme case of researcher bias or observer bias. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, so like the example that Henry gave of someone being perhaps racist, or sexist, or just very influenced by something in a way, Um, the key explanation behind these sort of things is that observer bias occurs when expectations influence observations and reality of the observer. So with the example that Henry gave um, someone being racist, That could have influence on their observation and making it not true and skewed in many problematic ways, which is very, very not good, but it is a problem that we have to deal with. Um, So how do we prevent this? Because it is a problem. Well, there are a few methods. Um, Number one is a single blind study.
1: Oh, we actually didn't know that. We actually just talked about double-blind studies. Oh, I think single-blind studies just the researcher hires a research assistant and then don't tell the research assistant what is the research question and then just like, go observe those behaviors and tell me what you find. And then, so this way, the research assistant will do the observation, but he will not know what is the subject of the study, so he will not be biased by the study.
0: That's double-blind. is really simple it's not the most optimized or it's not the best method out there but um single blind is pretty much when the experimenter or researcher knows who is in which group but the participants do not know Um, so like if I'm a participant I don't know if I have a placebo or like the new drug but Henry being the researcher he knows that I have a placebo so in that way The participant isn't, you know, influenced by their expectations, but the researcher could be influenced by his expectations because he does know. So the better way to do this is a double blind study. So neither the experimenter nor the participant knows who is in which group. Um, So even if Henry is a researcher and I'm the the participant, neither of us knows if the pill I have is a placebo or the new drug and this is better because neither of us is influenced. So yeah.
1: Yeah, that's basically it. Um, so I guess single blind just think of it as uh, one person doesn't know, double blind just two person doesn't know.
0: Exactly. Oh, I would like to highlight um, the concept of blindness is really about um, knowing which study group you're in. In certain studies, it is impossible to prevent, Like, it is impossible to um, guarantee like entire blindness kind of thing because in certain cases like you just can't hide it's just gonna be apparent but um in cases where you can um you should and yeah blindness is really about like knowing your group that's all
1: yeah well for Miss person's class i think we only need to know double blind study or double blind observation
0: okay okay now let's talk about descriptive research Four subcategories of it so for key types that you can do observational research with and they are naturalistic um, laboratory surveys and case studies and um, the key differences between them is the goal so yeah just to go over them really really quickly um, with experimental research your goal is to provide an explanation and what you're gonna do is you're gonna manipulate um and control variables so um yeah there's like usually there's an x and y variable the x variable being the independent one is the one that you control and then the y is the one that you observe to see if there are any changes based on the changes you made in the x that kind of classical thing um and it is interesting that the experimental research method is the only one that could identify a cause and effect relationship between the two variables, none of the other can. Like none.
1: (laughs) Takeaway guys remember naturalistic observation done in a natural environment laboratory observation done in anywhere but in a natural environment so for example can be in a lab can be a restaurant if the person does not go to that restaurant like often or it can be like in a classroom, if that person is not a student, just not their natural environment. The natural environment would just be, for example, going to the mall and just watch people. That would be a natural environment. Um, And uh, case study, case study focus on very few and very, just very few or one single individual. And the goal is always to gather as much data as possible to make a headway for future research. And what's the other one? I don't remember. Surveys. Oh, surveys. Surveys to gather a large amount of data, basically. And surveys can be done like uh, over the internet, over the phone, over like questionnaires, like surveys. You get surveys.
0: So descriptive research, as Henry has explained, um, they consist of the four types of researches known as naturalistic. Um, surveys, case study, and laboratory ones. And the purpose is to observe, collect and record data and to provide a description for the psychologist involved in this researching. And um, they the biggest disadvantage of this is that you have very little control over the variables and you cannot explain cause and effect from doing descriptive research alone. And last but not least you have correlation research which is a statistical analysis of relationships between variables and the purpose is really to identify um relationships and how well one variable predicts another um so the goal of this research method is prediction to be able to to guess like if one variable increase, will the other increase or decrease um this one cannot identify cause cause and effect. It may look like it can, but it cannot. So do keep that in mind. Um, and it's very interesting because there are natural, known as natural causation, natural correlation, which is like two variables. They're just kind of correlated, but for no reason at all. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, I remember there's this one where it's like the number of nick lodges or nick nick cage's movies going i think
1: uh there was one about uh the production of butter and earthquake in bangladesh or something
0: there you go yeah see like those two like if you just think about it you would see that they're probably they're probably not related they're just correlated for whatever reason yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so that's one problem with Um, correlation research and the other is the third variable problem and it's a fact that you could never really um be sure that the third variable is not involved in causing um the first and the second factors or variables to either increase or decrease so the example from the textbook is um they try to argue that children who are more exposed to um violent media um are more aggressive but then
1: or are they more aggressive so they watch more violent media
0: or maybe that but like yeah like basically both factors both variables both increases right but then there's a possibility of maybe it's due to the lack of adult vision that both increases so the third variable here would be the, the lack of adult supervision and that affects both, that causes both, but we we can never know for sure because, oh my god, we can state a thousand um, third variables, right? Yeah.
1: Well, this leads us to experimentation methods. So it's basically, we test the variables, only the two variables, so we ensure we we are holding everything constant by... uh, creating a control group and a experimental group if i'm not mistaken Um, and we use a randomized process to assign each participant to each group to ensure that there's no difference between their age gender um, number of friends or what they do Uh, so like everything will be like on average so we are holding everything else constant and we're just manipulating one variable for example exposure to um, media violence And that would be our independent variable and we would test the aggressiveness of the child which would be our dependent variable so remember your dependent variable depends on your independent variable so that's basically experiment Mm -hmm. oh but in experimentation do remember that manipulating the independent variable is called manipulation very easy to remember
0: yes (laughs) like henry said One way to avoid bias would be to use um, random assignment. And um, another way would be to do random sampling. However, this is not always feasible because it's actually really kind of hard to get everybody's approval and access to the entire population for that matter. So random assignment is probably like your better um, chance kind of thing.
1: Yep. Well, that's basically it.
0: Mm -hmm. So internal validity and external validity.
1: Oh yes, um, for Ms. Burton's class, it was not this was not a big thing. So internal validity is just how valid your experiment is inside the experimental condition, I think, and external validity is how well that uh, or how does uh, this research apply to like other real life scenario. For example, if like we move this scenario to real life. Does uh, if like a child watches more violent media, is he really going to be more violent or is it just like in the research scenario that he's more violent?
0: Exactly, that's pretty much it. Um, you could think of another example as internal validity, being like, okay, maybe your research says that the happier people are, they tend to eat more ice cream, but then you have to ask yourself, like, were the variables controlled? Um, what was like the environment, like, um, was the group of, was a sample like a diverse one? Well, that has more to do with external validity, but then let's just say everything inside of your experiment is correct and your results, as Henry said, could be applied to your participants. Now, if your, um, group of participants is a diverse one, one that that would well reflect world in which we live then you would be able to generalize the finding to a bigger population and that would be external validity so if your group of um, sample is all female then you cannot generalize that to males as well because that is not a good reflection Um, or if your group of sample is all people from like one specific country that you cannot generalize that to another region of the world. That probably wouldn't be right. So that's external validity. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. Basically, oh, representative variable variables. Uh, yeah. That's basically ensure that like, like people of every kind of characteristic are sort of included inside your experiment. So we do that by sort of like randomizing, random assignment, and be sure to draw on like other parts of the population if we can. Um yeah, and we talk about all this. Talk about um, ethics. Ethics, yes, ethics. Um I don't like ethics. Nobody
0: likes it. Like we're all yeah. bad people, call us that, but like nobody likes it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um so okay, respecting people, the ethics in psychology so the first one is informed consent so you have to get the the informed consent or participant they must be told about the risk involved what the experiment is just enough for them to give a consent and then if they are child their guardians have to give the consent for them um freedom from coercion can they the people cannot be like forced or threatened into doing the research for you either monetary physical psychological emotional etc Uh, Protection from harm. So the harm towards the participant must be minimized as much as possible, either psychological, emotional, physical, or otherwise. And uh, risk benefit analysis. Yes, before every research begins, you must assess the risk that it brings to the participant and the benefit that it will bring to society or science. And deception. The use of deception must be justified if it's only used if your research cannot be due, uh, cannot be done any other way. And uh, debriefing is if you use deception, after uh, you finish your research, you have to deep, fully debrief your participant about the research, and then they have to re-sign uh, informed consent because the one they signed was not good because that was not about the research. And confidentiality is you agree to keep the identity of your participant secret and not let like uh, not be Google and Amazon and Facebook basically.
0: That's pretty much it and to respect animals um the canadian council for animal care has this guideline called the three r's um number one would be to reduce the number of animals used in research um number two is try your best to replace animals with other types of research models whenever you can
1: like humans
0: yes And then number three would be to refine experiments to reduce suffering and discomfort for the animals. Um, So take good care of the animals. It is You should note that um, discomfort and pain for the animals during research should be minimized or must be minimized and that animal testing is only used when an alternative procedure is unavailable or justified by value according to the textbook or something. Um and amnesia or amnes amnesthesia.
1: It's basically like the thing that makes you go unconscious.
0: Yes, I'm so sorry for my mispronunciation. Um like when we are if we are to perform surgical procedures on animals, then that must be used. And um personally I have very strong feelings against testing on animals however um we must look back and reflect on the fact that it is thanks to the um, the help of like animal testing in psychology that we are able to learn or um we have like advanced a lot in psychology thanks to that so that is something that we must acknowledge despite how you feel on this topic but yeah, and that pretty much wraps up chapter 2.
1: And before that, do you finally we do have the institution review birds and ethic review birds to respect the truth and peer review and all that stuff. Review your chapter 2, page 48 of the textbook. That's just like a little thing. Okay, neuroscience. We're almost done. Guys, thank you if you're still listening, thank you for sticking with us for so long
0: honestly yeah
1: yeah we did not know psychology had this stuff this this much stuff to to study
0: yeah honestly this is a lot okay neuroscience and behavior um okay neurons (laughs) do you want to start
1: so neurons are like the basic cell in your brain that makes your brain work, basically, <laughs> right? So they communicate with one another via electric signals, and there are three parts to the neuron, which is the cell body, um, the nucleus, and the dendrites, and the axon, yes, the axon. Okay, so again, every every neuron has one cell body and one nucleus, and the nucleus contain the DNA. Your teacher might or might not want you to know that. and. Um, Yes, and the dendrites receive the signal from the previous neuron, and the dendrite would pass along that signal through the cell body, through the axon, to the dendrites of the next
0: neuron. That's pretty much it. Very well said, Mr. Henry. Yeah. Um, just a little extra-extra on there. Um, there's this thing called the myelin sheath. It's a fatty layer that's wrapped around the axon, and it insulates it. So um, the thing is, in between or within a neuron, the signal is um, an electrical signal. So what the myelin sheath does is it helps that electrical signal goes faster. So think of like an electrical wire. It has like that rubber wrapping around it. It's, you could think of it like that. That's one way to visualize it.
1: Oh, but do you remember there are like the little nodes in between, called the nodes of reindeer, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so the electrical signal basically jumps from one mining sheath to the next, and that allows them to, to travel faster. Uh, so one interesting fact is, for example, I think, I think, don't take me, don't take this as fact, I think like people with Alzheimer's, their mining sheath actually decayed, so that's why... Uh, their signal from the brain cannot travel as efficiently to other parts of the brain uh, or body. And they forget stuff, which is sad.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of um, diseases that's addressed in this chapter, and we will see them more and more as we go through. Um, yes. The synapse is... Okay, so your neurons, they don't actually touch despite how close they look to one another so the synapse is that little space in between the neurons and um because there's a space in between the neurons when one neuron wants to send a signal to another it can't be electrical so what it does is that um they send chemical signals instead and these are known as neurotransmitters which are basically (laughs) chemical signals sent by one neuron to another so the key takeaway is communication within the neuron, it's electrical, but communication between the neurons, that's chemical. Okay, there's this thing, it's called glial cells, so they are support cells um, that can be found in your nervous system. They can be myelin, um, just like the axons. They also support the system, um the scalp holding so they hold the brain together basically
1: they're like the glue like that's the where the word came from right yeah the greek word for glue
0: yes yes (laughs) um and then they're very important in the feeding and cleaning of
1: yes they digest parts of dead neurons thank you textbook and harvard again please don't sue us
0: seriously hope we don't get to (laughs) okay and then um so key takeaway is that the glial the cells, they have a very important role in neurotransmitting and the functioning of our brain.
1: I think we should talk about the major types of neurons before we move on.
0: Let's talk about the major types of neurons like you said.
1: Yeah, so there's sensory neurons, motor neuron, and uh, interneuron. Sensory neurons basically capture your senses, like your touch, your sight, your smell, etc. And transmit them to the brain. And then you remember interneurons are sort like internet. They connect the the other neurons together, including sensor neurons and motor neurons and other interneurons together. So basically like the internet. And the motor neuron is basically how you move your body. That's basically it.
0: That's yes. a very good way of seeing it. Um, and then we move on to... Okay, so earlier we mentioned that communication within a neuron is electrical. So it's this procedure called electrical or electric signaling, and um, it's all about conducting information within a neuron. So how does this work? Well, there's this fun little thing called the resting potential, and to put it simply, it is the difference between the positive and negative charge inside and outside of the neuron when it is resting, so when it is not doing anything.
1: That means when it's not like committing, like a firing a signal or like transmitting a signal.
0: Exactly. And um, so when the dendrites capture neurotransmitters, the cell body opens certain channels which allows in um, positively charged ions. And that causes a potential, the resting potential to increase. And when that resting potential um, reaches a certain threshold, then a signal is sent down to the terminal button. And that is the action potential. So the action potential occurs when the threshold is reached. And it, it is an an all-or-none process. There's no such thing as a big or small action potential. You'll always get the same action potential, but the difference is how many action potentials are sent. Um,
1: and uh, for Miss Burton's class, um, she might have given the example about a gun firing, so the action potential is whether you fire the gun or you don't fire the gun. And all oh, no, that's important. Do remember that.
0: That's a very good um, example. Okay. Um... And,
1: uh, oh, yeah. Just one note on the terminal buttons. They're just like the little knobs at the end of the dendroid when they, like before, they look like they are touching the neuron, but it's actually the synapse in between. So that's the terminal button or the synaptic knob or just the terminal button or the. Axon or the dendro terminal button, or they have a lot of names. Just the button.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then another thing to remember is that after the action potential is sent, um, the membrane needs to like relax. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It needs to relax. So there's this refractory period. You, duh, 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 the neuron just can't send another action potential and um the resting potential will actually be more negative than usual because it kind of overshoots it like if you guys have taken the course you know what i'm talking about um but yeah so during this period you can just you just pretty much cannot send another action potential or it'll be very very hard to do so with the negative charge in the neuron
1: so you you guys can think of like a after like super big finals and then you are just like burned out so that's the refractory period of the neuron
0: that's yeah oh my god pretty much, <laughs> yeah, okay. pretty much.
1: yeah pretty much that's the refractory period so just remember every time a neuron works hard he needs to rest just like okay, you guys
0: exactly <laughs> um so that's within the neuron now let's talk about between neurons so the procedure is called chemical signaling so once the action potential has reached the terminal button, and like after a whole procedure, we just talk happened, um, and reach the terminal button. It now triggers the release of neurotransmitters, which, as we discussed, are chemical signals. So, um, so
1: the, basically the action potential comes down, and then there's little like a uh, synaptic vesicles or like little bags, and then like the the, the action potential or the electric signal shakes them around. And the vesicles are basically containers. It's another word for vesicle or vesicle. And I mean, not in the psychological context, they just mean like containers. So they're basically little bags of neurotransmitters. And when the action potential shakes the vesicles, some of them stick to the cell membrane at the end of the terminal buttons. And that triggers the release of neurotransmitters.
0: Yes. Thank you for saving me there. (laughs) Um, I'm
1: glad I remember this part.
0: Wow, I will not remember this part. Anyways, um, neurotransmitters. There can be different types of signals sent. Um, They can be either excitatory or inhibitory. So, excitatory um, signals they want to be sent to the next neuron, while inhibitory signals they want to stop this signal from being sent to the next neuron, and.
1: I think excitatory was just like they trigger the next neuron to fire and inhibitory is like they stop the next neuron from firing.
0: Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good way to put it. Um, after the neurotransmitter has done its job, it has delivered its message, a few things could happen. Um, so number one, one thing that could happen is enzyme deactivation. Henry, what is enzyme deactivation? <laughs>
1: It's basically some neurotransmitter gets thrown into the synapse or synaptic gap and then they flow away and then do not go onto the next neuron, are not received by the next neuron, and so they are killed by enzymes.
0: Awesome. Okay, and then there's another thing called uh, reuptake. What is that?
1: (laughs) Reuptake is basically, I think, um, some neurotransmitter gets to reabsorbed into the original neuron that fired and that's basically reuptake
0: mm-hmm. so think of like there's a little i like to think that there's like a little transporter like i don't know man or like um
1: oh i think of it sort of like uh like uh, the neurotransmitter as like you dropped money and then like when they float away are people picking it up and then like reuptake while you're you, you picking it up yourself
0: Think of it like that and you will never forget it. Thank you, Henry. Yeah,
1: I just came up with that. Great.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Um And then the last thing that could happen is it could defuse. So unlike um with enzyme deactivation, where like the enzymes eat it up, as Henry explained. So um with diffusal, unlike with enzymes where they eat it up, diffusal happens when like the um, neurotransmitter just sort of drifts away. Like, yeah, buh-bye. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's this thing.
1: Autoreceptors?
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: Okay, so receptor is basically when there's too much neurons released into the synapse, they will, like, receive this too much, the, like, the, the neurons, they'll pick it up, and they'll tell the firing neuron who release all those uh, neurotransmitters to say, Hey, you've released enough, stop releasing, don't release anymore. That's basically all the
0: receptors. Beautiful.
1: And uh, we should do mention that if the neurons, uh, neurotransmitters, do go on to the next neuron, they are received in receptor sites. And there are specific receptor sites for each type of neurotransmitters, which we'll talk about now.
0: Well, let's first talk about the different types of neurotransmitters, yeah?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, number one, we have ascetype colin. They are involved in quite a few things. Um, one of them being voluntary motor control. So, oh, like, yes. anything that you want to do, like, intentionally, like, motor movements. Um, one example is disorders that, um, that, that involves, like, muscle movement problems. It's probably because there's a problem with, like, the axit-tycholin neurotransmitters. Um, So that's one way that you guys can draw the connection. Um, And these are found in neurons of the brain and in synapses where axons connect to muscles and body organs, such as the heart. Um, It contributes to the regulation of attention, learning, sleeping, dreaming, and memory. And then Alzheimer's disease involves like um memory impairments, so it is associated with like like Henry. I think Henry said this earlier, but it has to do with like um acetylcholine-producing neurons deteriorating. So yeah.
1: So I guess I was wrong earlier. Alzheimer's not associated with deterioration of the mining sheets. So. Guys, if like there's a multiple choice saying which, like, problem Alzheimer's disease is associated with, remember it's a deterioration of ACh-producing neurons and not the myelinating sheath. So that's it. Okay, dopamine. dopamine is like what you do, like what you get when you click on like a YouTube video you don't want to watch. <laughs> well, that's uh, basically it. Uh, right? Regulates uh, behavior, motivation, pleasure. Emotional arousal. Um, yeah, it's also, remember, dopamine is also uh, associated in motor behaviors, just like uh, ACH. I will not try to pronounce that, unless I embarrass myself. And yes, high levels of dopamine is linked to uh, schizophrenia. And I think, yes, low level have been linked to Parkinson's.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we have glutamate. Um, glutamate, actually... Um, goes hand-in-hand with GABA. So these two types of neurotransmitters, they um, they can cause a few things that are kind of related to each other. So let's start with glutamate. Glutamate is a very prominent excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, It enhances the transmission of information between neurons, whereas GABA is a significantly important inhibitory neurotransmitter. so it actually does the opposite. It stops neurons from um, like neuron tr- neurotransmitters oh my gosh, from being um, sent to one another. and um, too much glutamate or too little GABA can cause neurons to become overactive, um, which could lead to seizures. Okay, so now, Nera, pine-free, and Henry, go ahead. Oh.
1: Involved in a state of vigilance or heightened awareness of dangers in the environment. Thanks again, textbook, and don't sue us, Harvard. Um, and serotonin is a regulation of sleep and wakefulness, eating and aggressive behaviors. And yeah, basically that.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: Oh, so both affect mood and arousal.
0: Okie dokie. Um then lastly, we have endorphins and they are chemicals that act within the pain pathways and emotion centers of the brain. Um, they help dull the experience of pain and elevate moods. So um, this happens often with um, athletes, how they are able to really push their bodies to or past painful limits of endurance um, because of the due to the release of endorphins in their brain
1: yes and guys just remember endorphins the nomenclature comes from morphine so it's basically painkiller
0: oh didn't know that
1: i think or like unless i'm mistaken again but it's a good way to remember
0: okay now let's talk about how drugs mimic neurotransmitters so drugs there's two types of drugs and One being agonist, and the other is antagonist. Um, So Henry, what is an agonist drug?
1: It's basically like the excitatory neurotransmitters. They basically either facilitate the transmission of neurotransmitters, or they cause the firing of the next neuron. I think, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Um, more or less, yeah. 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 (laughs) Because, um... Another way of putting it, which you're correct, don't worry. Another oh, way okay. another way of putting it is that they increase the action of a neurotransmitter more neurotransmitters. They just make one neurotransmitter react again and again and again. Um, so please don't mess that up. And then the other thing they could do is they could actually fit in the same receptors as the neurotransmitters. Oh, yes. This is scary. It is scary. Yeah. And lastly, they could... Oh they could block reuptake and they could block the deactivation of excess neurotransmitters as well um, by blocking the reuptake or the um, degra- degradation and they prolong activation of the receptor sites.
1: And they also might block the autoreceptor.
0: Exactly. Yes. Okay. And then the other type of drugs is antagonists <laughs> yeah
1: so for example uh alcohol like they block the function of you as like a person your mental ability so antagonists just like alcohol and alcohol is an antagonist are drugs that block the function of neurotransmitter and like the the neurons basically
0: right um so one thing they could do is actually make your pesicles like Henry was mentioning earlier the pesicles are containers that contain neurotransmitters inside the neuron and um they could make these pesicles leaky so oh, Pamela, um it's vesicles vesicles you know what I was thinking of there's this guy in history pericles or something
1: Oh uh, pericles
0: per- don't even with names i'm so sorry <laughs> it's
1: okay
0: okay yeah him um wait I wrote vesicles. What is wrong with me?
1: <laughs> it's vesicles.
0: I'm very interesting. Okay, okay. So, one thing they could do is um, they could make vesicles. As Henry was saying earlier, these are containers that contain the neurotransmitters within neurons. They could make them leaky. And that means that the neurotransmitters can't be released um, when the vesicles bind with the membrane. So, that's bad. Um, And the other thing, like Henry mentioned, is they could block receptor sites. So, they pretty much block your neurotransmitters from binding into another receptor. Mm -hmm. And I think now let's talk about...
1: Yay, the organization of the nervous system.
0: Okay, so the nervous system, you could actually categorize this into two. The peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. The central nervous system is really really simple. It's just a brain and the spinal cord whereas the peripheral nervous system um, it's anything from
1: but the brain and the spinal cord.
0: Any, yeah, pretty much anything but the brain and the spinal cord. Um, and then that's why it could be split into two more categories autonomic and somatic. So what is somatic, Henry?
1: Somatic is basically the part of your body that you can control.
0: Yes, so voluntary movements. Yes. If yes. I want to sway my arms or Henry wants to kick his leg, that kind of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Autonomic would be...
1: Basically automatic.
0: Yeah. Things that you can't control pretty much, but like, um, they kind of just function. So... For example, I would say, like, maybe organs are a very good example, right?
1: Heartbeat, like keeping you alive, or respiration.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wait, fun fact you breathe until you think about breathing, and then you stop breathing. Yes, I
1: know, right? It's the same thing with, like, saliva.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the weirdest part. Ah, oh, it's so weird. Yeah. Okay um anyways the autonomic um, nervous system could be broken into two more being sympathetic and parasympathetic so sympathetic nervous system um it activates your system and it prepares you for a fight or flight situation um and don't it doesn't necessarily have to be like you are in danger Um, even examples where you're walking up a stair, the stairs, and, um, when you walk up the stairs, you require energy, right? So, that's when your sympathetic nervous system would kick in, it would get your blood pumping, and do all those biology stuff that, I don't know, because I never took biology, but it would do, like, get your heartbeat pumping, that's the most obvious one. Oh, I think,
1: oh, I think um do you guys do you need to know like the symptoms of sympathetic nervous system if you are in miss burton's class if because she talked about it so basically how like your uh i think your your eye gland uh your not eye glands uh, yes your tear glands dry up um like you want to pee yourself because you cannot control your bladder uh, your digestion system stops to function um your pupil ex, uh, increase in size to let in more light um, and I think your throat go dry because your digestive function is not important in a fight-or-flight situation. And again, the sympathetic nervous system does not have to be like an actual threat like you facing a tiger. It just needs to be the perception of threat. For example, if you're working alone in, a prefer- uh, in, in broad daylight but you, you think someone is uh, like stalking you and it's going to kill you, that will activate your sympathetic nervous system.
0: Very well said. Um, as for Professor Andrews' class, we actually have like a little um, diagram. I don't think Professor Andrews speaks too too much in detail regarding the symptoms, but um, we do have like a diagram of like the parts in which each of the two system kind of affects and in what way they affect them. So they affect the same um, parts, but they just affect them in different ways. So like an example that Henry brought up is um, for the sympathetic system. Mm, your pupil expands to let in more daylight whereas with the parasympathetic system um, as we're going to talk about now so the parasympathetic system really brings you back to normal after your sympathetic system um, comes into action so with the example of the pupil after the pupil has expanded expanded, the, the parasympathetic system um, it contracts your pupil now that you don't need to be as Mm, like, up and about. to
1: survive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So that's pretty much it. So,
1: guys, just remember the parasympathetic nervous system. The symptoms, if you do need to know them, are the reverse, basically the complete reverse of the sympathetic nervous system.
0: Beautiful. There's one thing I want to talk about because... Okay, this is talked about in Professor Andrew's class, erections and ejaculations. This is Um, so weird. I know. So... The sympathetic system, um, it stimulates ejaculation, whereas the parasympathetic system stimulates erections, so they're actually not the same thing, like, we think they're the same thing, but they're two different events that could be distinct from one another, um, uh, and a side note is that when you're stressed, it's hard to have an erection because of that reason. I'm sorry, I don't really know, but yeah, um,
1: I don't know why Professor Andrew wants you guys to know this, but it's out there now.
0: Honestly, okay, okay. Um, so yeah, to, in order to talk about reflexes, I think let's talk about the central nervous system and the spinal cord, yeah? Yeah. Okay so the spinal cord i'm just gonna give like a really brief explanation and then you can talk about reflexes the spinal cord is a long axon um in the middle of our back
1: oh it's not a long axon it's uh it's a bundle like a bundle of axons that travels through the back sort of like a rope
0: okay that makes sense
1: oh yes i do forgot to mention guys do remember one Yes, one neuron only has one axon, I think. Am I correct? Or am I like, going crazy?
0: You're probably correct. Uh...
1: That's important. Um, yeah, I think one neuron only has one axon.
0: Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, and it, it like connects to like the other um, dendrites.
1: Yes, so guys do remember that. Don't mess up the biology part, because this is the only chapter we have biology. Biology, oh, um, sorry. And... Yes, we do know that. That's why we're not in science.
0: (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Um, Anyways, back to the spinal cord. So it's a bundle of axons. Thank you for the correction, Henry. In the middle of our back. And um, it actually has specific sections dedicated to specific parts of our body. And if you damage um, a certain section... Everything below that injury is not gonna receive information. So, yes. mm-hmm. which is why um, if you damage basically the back of your neck, the highest part of the spinal cord, that's okay. really dangerous. That leads to paralyzation yeah. because, yeah, anything below that doesn't receive information. So, yeah, mm. that's um, the spinal cord. And now Henry's gonna talk about spinal reflexes.
1: Yeah, so spinal reflexes, so your reflex for example um, you, you stepped on a piece of lego, um, right? So again, you step on a piece of lego and then your sensory neuron, because your sensory neurons uh, are for, responsible for capturing your senses, uh, captures the pain signal and sends that to your neuron and does not go to your brain, well it does go to your brain, later your brain knows about it, but first it only goes to, to, goes to your spinal cord. And then through your spinal cord, through an interneuron, through the internet system of the nervous system, um, it travels to the motor neuron to produce a spinal reflex to quickly retract the muscle. And then it's only after this process of only traveling through the spinal cord, a signal will be sent to the brain and the brain will know, okay, yeah, this hurts. So that's why you always pull away your muscle first or like your part of the body that's stepping on the Lego, then your brain registers yeah that hurts so spinal reflex first to the spinal cords and then only later the brain learns about it the brain yeah the brain learns about it
0: Mm -hmm. okay and now we're gonna talk about the structure of the brain so there's three divisions of the brain kind of simple um there's the hindbrain the midbrain and the forebrain and the key idea to take away from this is like the forebrain, that's like the highest level of the brain, like literally, it's it's above the other two levels and um, you should remember that the higher the levels are, the more complex they are, like the forebrain is responsible for things like thinking processing, like the more abstract, really stuff. abstract stuff yeah um, whereas the hindbrain is not capable of that nor is the midbrain, so yeah um
1: So just remember guys, hindbrain is uh, responsible for the autonomic functions, uh, the functions that you ensure that you are alive, for example, breathing, uh, heartbeat, etc. things like that, and do study the parts of the hindbrain which are cerebellum, reticular formation, medulla, and the pons. And uh, the midbrain on the other hand, they also ensure some biological functions and they also contain the uh, I forgot what's it called. Um, so basically, they, 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 they give you like the part of the brain that allows you to turn towards a stimulus. Yeah. The tectum and the tegmentum or something? The tectum and uh, whatever the other part's called. <laughs> uh, so, like, they allow- so for example, one you're in classroom, like very quiet, you hear a door bang and everyone just turns toward that door. That's your tectum and your tegmentum you find. Again, I forgot the name. Um, yes, tegmentum, and uh, they, they are the parts of the brain in the midbrain that allows you to do that. And finally, the forebrain, just like Camila talks about, it's the your it's the big brain part of your brain.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the yeah. forebrain is, uh, as I've mentioned, like it's crucial for um, complex cognitive, emotional, sensory, and motor functions. Um, it has a few parts to it. It has the sub- subcortical structures so they're like areas of the forebrain brain that um, houses under the cerebral cortex um, near the very center of your brain and they play very important roles in um, transmitting information throughout your brain um, performing like specific human tasks um, like, you guys should study this on your own. But um, the subcortical structures um, include the thalamus, which is responsible for like relaying and filtering information from the senses and transmitting that to the cerebral cortex. Um, the hypothalamus, which is responsible for regulating body temperature, hunger, thirst, and sexual behavior. Um, the pituitary gland, um, it's known as the master gland of the body's hormone-producing system because it releases hormones that direct functions of many other glands in the body. Um, The hippocampus, which is responsible for the creation of new memories and putting them into a network of knowledge so that it could be stored in other parts of the cerebral cortex. Um, The amygdala, yeah I said that right, okay. it is. Located at the tip of each horn of the hippocampus, and it plays a very important role in many emotional processes, um, particularly the formation of memory and the basal.
1: Emotional memory.
0: Emotional memory. Important, yeah. Um, and lastly, the basal ganglia, um, which is a set of um, subcortical structures that direct intentional movements. Um, under which there's a part of it that's called the triadum and it involves the control of postures and movements yeah, um, now we can talk about the cerebral cortex
1: wait, uh, before uh, you guys move on, Miss Burton do you want you guys to know that amygdala is very responsible for fear responses, uh, fear emotions and uh, I do have a little memory tips for you guys. Uh, Amigdala. So the first is ami. So it's like French friend. So like friend with emotion, right? With friend, you, you are happy. So unlike like in COVID, so you're sad. So ami, like emotion. So remember that.
0: Awesome. And then um, want to talk about the cerebral cortex?
1: Yes, the big brain part.
0: So you want to tell us about that a little bit?
1: I actually don't remember.
0: That's okay. It's really simple. The cerebral cortex is the outermost layer of the brain. It's one milli One millil- One millimeter thick. Um, Yeah, it's like the outside layer of it. Yeah, it's, yeah, like-,
1: it's like the squiggly part you see.
0: Exactly. And it can be divided into two hemispheres. Um, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And then right... In between the thing that connects the two hemispheres is called the corpus colossum um, and what's interesting about this it, it is that it allows um, the two sides of the brain um, to really communicate with one another um, and then the other thing to take away from this is that the right side of the brain is actually responsible for everything the left side of the body does and vice versa. One key thing that you should remember is that language function is always on the left side. The other things I think vary, and uh, most teachers won't be too nitpicky about it, but language specifically is for most people who are right-handed, it's on the left. And that's the statistic that we're gonna go with, although of course it differs for left-handed people, and it's not 100% of people that the left side is responsible for language, but um, generally speaking, it is. And then there's this thing.
1: For Miss Burton's class, just to remember languages on the left side, we don't need to know about, like, people on the other side.
0: Um, there's this thing called split brain. So, um, not sure if you guys know, but there's this, um, the, there's this, like, condition called epilepsy, um, where, like, a part of the brain... Um, because it's not functioning correctly there's like an electrical storm as our professor puts it that originates from that part of your brain and it spreads to all other parts of the brain and it leads to seizures which is not good so one way to like really prevent that seizure is to cut the corpus callosum the thing that connects the two sides the two hemispheres of the brain um, that means the two sides of the brain can no longer directly communicate with one another. And um, while this prevents epilepsy from traveling all over the brain, it does do this thing where um, it limits certain um, like functions of the human body. Um, Such as, okay, if basically if somebody has a split brain treatment, then if they see an, they see two objects, let's say, one that is on their right and one that is on their left. The item on their right, um, they could name and they could pick it up. However, the item on their left, they cannot name. However, they can pick it up. Why is this so? Because the left side of the brain is responsible for language and it is also responsible for movement of the right side of the body. Um, Meanwhile, the right side of the brain, it is responsible for the left side of the body's movement, but it is not responsible for language. Therefore, it cannot um, produce speech um, that corresponds with the motions of that side of the body.
1: And uh, should we also go into the division within hemispheres? Okay, yeah. So, guys, the, there's the occipital. Uh, so, each hemisphere divided into four lobes. So, there's the occipital lobe, the temporal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the frontal lobe. The occipital lobe is re- responsible for sight, the temporal lobe responsible for hearing. And on the left side, exclusively the, the left side of the temporal lobe, uh, it houses the Wernicke's area, which is responsible for language interpretation and also some speech. And uh, in the frontal lobe, there's the Broca's area we talked about in the beginning, it's responsible for language production, and parietal lobe, I actually do not remember what's it responsible for.
0: Um, the parietal lobe, <laughs> okay, this one is actually um, the one to process information regarding touch, um, which has to do with the somatosensory cortex. I'm pretty sure it is inside of that, that cortex is inside of this lobe.
1: Yes, it is.
0: Mm-hmm. And it also integrates information from uh, the other lobes. I'm reading this from like the textbook definition. So, and then, um...
1: oh yes, uh, one note on the somatosensory cortex is just like a soma is. I think the Greek or Latin word for the body. So the somatosensory cortex is a- like every part of that cortex linked to a single part of the body. Um, and I think, for example, if a person is like amputated in one part of the body, that part of the somatosensory cortex will get taken over by other uh, parts of the body. For example, uh, well, if you touch like an amputated arm of a person, they might uh, instead feel like that in coming from, like, another part of the body, for example, the thigh, the thigh, because the thigh has taken over that part of the somatosensory cortex. And so, in other words, the cortex, the somatosensory cortex, the on it does not die out with, like, the amputation of a body part. Instead, it's taken over by other body parts, mm-hmm. so to speak.
0: hmm And, yeah, um, it's very interesting. What's very interesting about the somatosensory cortex as well is, like, the more sensitive a body part of yours is, like, the more area it takes up, right?
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah, Yeah.
0: so, for example, the tongue um, takes up a huge part because that's a very sensitive part of your body. I'm pretty sure fingers should too, I think. Um, Yeah, and then um, the other cortex you have is the motor cortex. And it's funny because the motor cortex, um, the parts that are responsible for each. Um, Part of your body on the motor cortex is very very similar to that of the somatosensory cortex Um, And the motor cortex is responsible for the uh, manipulation of movement. So like the more um, Manipulation you need for like certain parts of your body the more area it's gonna take up Which is really interesting. And that's why you arrive at like this little figure called the Homun homunculus homunculus
1: i forgot what's it called yeah it's yeah, like yeah it's this
0: little guy and um he is the proportional representation of how much space in the brain is designated to specific parts of the body um and you could look at him in your textbook i believe <laughs> and then there's also this concept of brain plasticity it's the ability of the brain to really adapt its function and structure. So yeah, for example, it like it has the ability to reorganize itself and change and adapt to like conditions. Um, like there's this patient who um, we talked about this patient who lost um, half of her brain due to like because she had a very very bad seizure and it was Ooh. necessary to remove half of her brain. But her um, brain was able to like adapt to that and um, Pretty much like transferred all information from like one side of her brain to the other to continue functioning Like that's a key takeaway from it. The fact that like the brain is able to respond to new experiences um, it can learn new things like new languages new games and um, It could compensate for lost function after damage Um, also um, do know that it's easier to do this when you're younger than when you're older because um like your neural transmitters or neurons when you're younger a lot of them aren't designated to like jobs just yet so they have like a lot of free neurons whereas when you're older when you're just older it's just a lot harder to like adapt and things it kind of reflects a human behavior so yeah you can think of it that way yeah,
1: sort of like the stereotype, like older people are more conservative, exactly. older people are more free thinking but again, stereotypes are stereotypes.
0: Exactly, okay. Um, do we want to cover like genetics real quick?
1: And yeah, then, genetics okay. are important.
0: <laughs> okay, so this has to do with um, evolutionary psychology, actually, because that dealt with natural selection, so you could make the connection here. Um, so behavioral genetics is the study of relative contribution of genetic influences and environmental factors on behaviors and mental processes, um, and so like we try to associate which gene usually leads to which type of behavior or mental processes. Um, it all goes back to that argument of nurture versus nature that we talked about in chapter one, like how much of us is created by our environment versus how much are we like just born with it genetically um, mm-hmm. so genes um, are the unit of hereditary transmission again my apologies for the pronunciation um, and they are sections of your their sections on your strands of DNA which are organized into chromosomes um and they one way to think of it is like they're like the recipe for who you are <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah but however do you remember the epigenetics part so it's basically studying how an environment affects the genetics so for example so think of your genetics as like a a uh, a recipe as Camilla said that your mom used to make and then, like, uh, epigenetics is that you take that recipe, but you add your own spin
0: on it. Yes. Yes, yes. That's very interesting. Traits. Traits are observable behaviors, or <laughs> traits are observable things, such as Henry has dark hair. That's a trait of Henry. Okay. Um, yep, yeah, that's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> um, okay, and um... then now... Um, how genes interact. So most cells have 23 pairs of chromosomes, except for gametes, which are sex cells, also known as sperms and eggs. They only have half of that um, because when the sperm meets the egg, they apparently come together and they like...
1: Do biological magic, which social science people don't care about.
0: Pretty much, yeah. Um, And uh, oh, an argument that my teacher brought up during our um class is that the reason why it's more complicated in psychology compared to biology is that in psychology it's not very straightforward um there could be like some wishy-washy because like how we can't directly say that one gene is responsible for aggressivity versus another that's responsible for sympathy it's a bit more wishy-washy than that like you don't necessarily have to remember that for um the exam but it like contributes to your understanding pretty much okay and now let's talk about transmission because gene pairs can be dominant recessive or co-dominant so dominant is that um dominant genes are you can think of them as being stronger than recessive genes so, um, if you have a pair of like one dominant and one recessive gene, then the dominant gene is gonna show. Think of it like that. Whereas recessive recessive genes, because they're weaker than dominant genes, you can think of it like that. Um, you need two pairs of recessive genes for the gene to really show. Um, in the case of the dominant gene, that the recessive gene is actually hidden. Like you can't actually see it. For example, if you have a parent with blue eye blue eyes and the other with like darker eyes, um, chances are you're gonna get the darker eyes because that's a dominant gene, whereas you do actually have the blue eyes gene, but it's a recessive gene, so you don't show it, but it's there, so it's a hidden gene. And then co-dominant genes, um, that's where both of the genes, or you can also say both alleles, are expressed, um, meaning... So think of it like blood transmission. For example, if your mom has um, blood type A, and your dad has blood type B, and you have blood type AB, that's an example of co-dominant. There's also a lot of problems um, associated with recessive genes, which is why it's not a good thing to like marry your families, because when you marry your families, remember that recessive genes, they... They need both genes to be recessive to show, um, whereas like if you, if only one person has that um, recessive gene and the other is dominant, it won't show. So a lot of disorders are actually associated with recessive genes, and the odds are if you're going to marry somebody who comes for the same um, family line as you, you both might be carrying that recessive gene, and then that gene will show because there's no dominant gene to counteract that. That's like the easiest way to understand it, um, I suppose. Mm, Yep, genes and the environment. Okay, so again, we're almost done. I'm gonna go over this really, really quick. So um, there are different types of studies to study genetics. Um, It all really has to do with like the nature versus nurture. argument that we talked about so um one of them is family studies where like we use the family tree model to track down like um trends or things like that so that one's kind of self-explanatory i suppose another is the adoption study where let's say um you can't force people to get adopted first of all but um if a child comes from alcoholic parents like parents who struggle with alcoholism um but they are raised by parents who do not struggle with said problem what are the odds that they are going to grow up to become um somebody who struggles with alcoholism because perhaps there is a gene that um sort of like pushes for the likeliness of becoming somebody who who does struggle with the problem but um how much of it is also dependent on the people who raise you so that's really the question that's trying to be addressed here with adoption studies and then um the other thing is twin studies so twin studies um there are two types of twins so there are monozygotic twins which are like identical twins like they are duplication or close of one another um why does science people have so much big brain names i know right like i don't even understand Plastic. any of this um but yeah so they they are the same person but twice so they have 100 percent of the same dna um they may look slightly different um due to like you oh know environment God. so like going back to um what henry said earlier about epigenetics like how our genes are expressed. Um, It depends on your environment, your genes can be um, expressed differently for one twin versus the other. Um, uh, And then you have dizygotic twins. Okay, got it.
1: So basically not identical twins, from what I understood.
0: Exactly! Um, Also known as fraternal twins. Um, so they are understood to be no more similar than brothers and sisters, and they only share fifty percent of genes. So it's actually different. Two different eggs. They're not one egg that splits into two, which is the case with monozygotic twins. They are from two different eggs. There were IQ studies that shows that like identical twins are more identical when it comes to IQs than fraternal twins are, um, and this proves that. Genetics do factor in a lot when it comes to like your IQ, so your IQ is more likely to be affected by your genetics than your surrounding is the argument that's being made with this study. Okay. We're finished. Mm -hmm, We're finished. We're actually finished. Do you want to do the outro?
1: I mean, thank you for sticking with us over three hours. I mean, while we've edited this, this will probably not be three hours, but thank you for sticking us for like over two hours and a half. Oh, it was really fun. Studying psychology again. I didn't know you guys had this much stuff to go through. (laughs) I didn't know I had this much stuff to go through. I studied it.
0: Quite a lot.
1: Yeah, it was a lot.
0: All right, everybody, go study, okay? Yeah,
1: or take a break after listening to like this bloody long thing, which I have to edit.